Welcome to the science of feeding the world in the lockdown. Today we spoke to a fantastic scientist, Kevin Falter, Dr. Kevin Falter, and we talked all about strawberries and different colours of strawberries and different tasty, delicious strawberries. We didn't just talk about strawberries though, did we? We did biotechnology and how as scientists we should be combating misinformation. Gary got very passionate. And we talked about how light can make it, can, we could use light to grow plants uh, in very unique ways. Take it away. You are listening to a podcast. But what is that podcast? It's the science of feeding the world. Welcome to another episode of the science of feeding the world with me, Gary Fruin. I'm Hannah McGrath. And I'm Alex Dye. This is going to be really interesting with kind of lag over the internet. <laughs> but uh, and today we're joined uh, from all the way on the other side of the Atlantic by Dr. Kevin Falter. All right. I suppose I heard of you, Kevin, as a science communicator, first and foremost. Um, you were doing a lot kind of, well, for the last decade at least, for that I've been following. I'm sure much, much before that as well. And you've been doing a lot during the kind of isolation lockdown that we're all in at the moment, uh, I've seen on Facebook. How's that all going? Well, everything's going well. I was trying to do a lesson every day for kids at uh, 11 o'clock Eastern time. The problem is, is that now the rest of the world is starting to catch up with the idea that we can do Zoom and actually get work work done. <laughs> so, you know, my, my days are now filled with meetings and conferences. And so it's it's all good. I'm still going to try to do some things for kids, but maybe one or two a week rather than every day because it, it takes time yeah it takes time i saw today's was about venomous snakes or something yeah we're going to talk about venomous snakes in about an hour it's super cool and just kind of get kids i thinking about why would evolution make something like a venomous snake what's the purpose and how does it work and what are some of the interesting facets so really really cool adaptive biology a lot of ecology and we're going to talk to kids about that uh today that's fantastic. So if someone wanted, say, hypothetically, if someone wanted to join in because they were really interested in that, how could they uh, find some sort of link? <laughs> yeah, all of this is on my professional Facebook page so uh... at Facebook.com KM Fulta. And uh, that gets you look, into look. that page. And all of these will be available permanently. And I'm going to do some production on them. And they'll look really good. Right now, they're super sloppy. And cause it's me and a tripod and a or you know, that's or charming. Really human. It's charming. <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's lo-fi. <laughs> exactly. It's very uh, very lo-fi. <laughs> but uh, venomous snakes. Sorry, I shouldn't have probably sidetracked a whole podcast. I think we haven't even started. The real yet. <laughs> reason. <laughs> the real reason I think we wanted to get you on was to try and kind of jump into a little bit about perhaps why strawberries are important or, or why kind of lights yeah, and plants should, matter. Should we kick this off with our, we, we often start these podcasts with kind of a, a big question. And uh, in this case, what we're thinking is, uh, Kevin, what makes a strawberry taste like a strawberry? Wow, that's a really cool question. And it, it really is an interesting one because it goes down to why does anything taste like anything, right? And it's a combination of two things, a, a bunch of characteristic chemicals that are present that define sweetness or uh, volatiles, floral notes, that kind of thing, and how it integrates with the brain through a set of sensors in our nose and mouth. 
And so strawberries taste like a strawberry because the volatiles they emit, the sugars and acids that touch the tongue, all together come give the brain a picture of something that we think of as a strawberry. It's it's a really complex mix too, something like 300 different volatile chemicals. Wow. <laughs> So we've done a podcast with one of the PhD students at Rothamsted who's looking at the odorant binding proteins in um, aphids antenna, um, which is kind of a completely different perspective, though, I, I guess, from humans eating a strawberry, though. Well, sort of. I mean, you start mm. to wonder, did they make these chemicals for us or did they make these chemicals to attract pollinators or to uh, attract something to eat the fruit for seed dispersal? or in some cases to deter spoilage, or maybe even all of the above. So I think that what we're seeing is the chemicals we like uh, to eat. Is it really a question of, did the, did the plants make the, are, are we selecting better plants or are plants selecting us? And that's really the kind of circle. <laughs> it's really a circular question, right? We pick the ones that have the best flavors and then we make more of them. And they pick the so, best us. That's right. They're they're actually yeah. using us for their own their own improvement. Are <laughs> <laughs> we all? So this kind of idea of us breeding strawberries. So I'm quite comfortable with the idea of like we breed a dog so that the dog is friendly or the dog likes to fetch things or retrieve things or that kind of thing. And I get the idea that we we breed strawberries maybe so they last longer on a shelf or maybe they're, they're more resilient um, or can fight diseases off more. But what are you kind of doing at the moment with the strawberry genome? Well, right now we're actively mining the strawberry genome to understand what are the individual genetic loci that control those important traits? So thinking about flavors and aromas, thinking about disease resistance, and then working hand in hand with a strawberry breeding program. And the, the big deal for us is that over the last hundred years, strawberry improvement meant larger red things you put in a basket, um, more, higher yields, larger size, and disease resistance, as you mentioned. And you can tell that when you do that under intense annual selection, you now skew away from flavors and aromas. And that's why strawberries haven't been tasting as good as they used to, uh, perhaps. And so now our effort is to find those genetics, find them in wild repositories, and breed them back into, uh, into the modern cultivated strawberry lines. So hang on, wait, this is this is blowing my mind. So at Rothamsted, <laughs> I understand that we have these collections of wheat that are something like 120 years old. Do you have like libraries of strawberries that are wild or old types of the Retro the strawberries. Then? Yeah, there are actually some pretty cool retro strawberries. Uh, there's, there's a few um, volatiles that are very important to the flavor that have been lost yet still exist in some older german cultivars inside some french heirlooms so these things are out there and and if you start to go through all the different varieties that are present you can start to find who has these genetics and just to get into the genetics a little bit is that what's really cool is that most of these are encoded by single locus dominant traits so it means in one generation, you can integrate those flavors back in and have a very good handle on the genetics. And it makes the process of uh, better quality strawberries a little easier. So you could do that sort of straight away. Mm. 
Yeah, we, we can test it pretty quickly. I think it's like a good example is this thing called gamma decalactone, which is a, a chemical that provides a peach note. And it's the dominant flavor in te- peaches, nectarines. And it's encoded by a single gene. And this is in an octoploid organism. So a st- there's yeah. so many words all over the place at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> What's it? Gamma, gamma, gamma decalactone. Yeah, gamma decalactone. Wow. Yeah. It's it's a uh, it's it's a it's actually derived from fatty acids. It's a uh, it's a chemical that that really smells great. And it, when you smell it, you just open the bottle of the reagent, and the room smells like a peach orchard. It's fantastic. I'm interested because you said it's uh, some of these are like single locus dominant genes, and I'm kind of going back to high school biology here, where I'm thinking of you know I'm used to talking about dominant genes in terms of humans, you know one mother, one father, and you kind of have a dominant you know maybe blue eyes or brown eyes or something like that. But in if you've got an octoploid genome, and that means it's got what eight eight genomes? Well, no, it has Is that eight eight eight. eight, eight. Eight, eight chromosomes per uh, diploid genome. So you have you have uh, four complete genomes inside this. Wow. Uh, four complete diploid genomes inside each cell. <laughs> so what does dominant Whoa. mean when you've got four complete genomes with eight <laughs> chromosomes? <each? laughs> well, it means you spend a lot of time thinking about this. It, what what it is is yeah. that we have it, it, there's one locus on one of those four subgenomes. So of those eight chromosomes, one of them has it, but it's dominant. And that's enough. So that's all you need. It's yeah. just that one copy. So that makes life a lot easier for you. Because I was trying to think, if you're trying to get a little bit of DNA that codes for something like tastier or sweeter strawberries or something like that, if you only have to get that into one place rather than getting that into eight places, that's a lot easier for us to breed better strawberries then. Absolutely. And, and that's the beauty of this is that you can treat it like a diploid. You, um, when you have a single locus dominant, all you have to do is come up with a DNA-based marker. Or For those listening who aren't in the markers, you can use different amplification techniques to identify, does this piece, is this piece present or not? And it's very simple. And for us to be able to do this, you can you can cross one that has it with one that doesn't. And in the progeny, see 50% of them now have that gene. And that's or 50% or 100%, depending on the background of the parent. And that's a very easy test for us to do. And so right now, the breeding program at the University of Florida screens seedlings with probably 20 different markers for different flavor and disease sensitivity ah. volatiles. So here's a question then. This is going to remind you of talking to children about this sort of science. Uh, if you could take that gene for the, um, the enhanced flavor or the color or whatever you want, could you then, in theory, put that into, a, say, a banana and have a strawberry-flavored banana? <laughs> um, well, well, probably not just because the, the complexity of the uh, of the flavor comes from a whole bunch of them together. Whole, and so think of it this way: it would be like saying uh, you have an orchestra that's playing, you know, a certain s- symphony, and now all of a sudden you drop in a uh, what's a good instrument to drop in? An electric guitar. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to make it uh, sound like make that orchestra sound like Metallica. Mm. You know, so that's maybe that's <laughs> that is a pretty good analogy. Uh, yeah, so it's a very good analogy. Uh, so that that's really the issue. 
So I don't want to dismiss the strawberry. Um, I work on carrots, so I understand kind of like the niche vegetable. Um, but why do you care about strawberries? I'm guessing strawberries are, well, they seem like a minor crop. Is there kind of what's the logic behind focusing on strawberries? Well, I think strawberries are a microcosm of a very important question that also applies to carrots is how do we get people to eat more fruits and vegetables? And how do we how do we do that? And I think to do that, it, we have to really emphasize flavors and aromas and sensory qualities in general and then keep the price down and uh, post harvest quality high. So it's a multifactorial problem, but the idea should be how do we get better fruits and vegetables in more people, especially the poor. Mm. And uh, that's why all of these techniques are really uh, helping towards that mission. So what about the nutrition of the strawberries? So we've spoken about how they, they smell or how they taste, but um, so I see quite a lot on social media that, I don't know, an apple will be a third less nutritious now than it was 60 years ago or or some kind of fact like that you know nutrition in fruit and vegetables is that changing because of breeding and is it something if it is changing that we're trying to put back in through the techniques that you're talking about well i think it's changing because of dilution that if you look on per gram weight you're harvesting bigger fruits and vegetables that are just really more water mm. and that means that you're diluting out the chemistry that's there Ultimately, the same amount of nutrition is there. It's just in a bigger bag. So the other side of the coin on that, and I have a friend, a very dear friend, who spent 20 years saying, look, I've increased the amount of antioxidants in strawberry through breeding by 20%. And I said, well, I made them taste better, and now people eat three instead of one. So I increased the effective exposure to the nutrition by 300%. And he looked at me mm. kind of sad and then he walked away. <laughs> Haven't talked to him since. <laughs> no longer so a very really, dear friend. Uh, but you see the idea is that if we, it, yeah. it really is more about how do you get people to eat more of it? And then we can start dealing with all the issues, the nuances of bioavailability and, you know, and, and what is actually in there. Uh, it's, it's a better choice than cookies or, um, you know, whatever else. Yeah. So that, that's where I'm leaning. Cool. So uh, the research you've been doing over the past kind of decade or more, I think, Kevin, is um, has a lot to do with exposing fruits and vegetables to kind of narrow bandwidths of light. So rather than just kind of all light from the sun that we get all the frequencies using very specific frequencies of light um, to produce different effects. I just wonder if you could just talk about introduce us to that a little bit. Oh, sure, sure, sure. This is so cool because plants have different sensors for light that sense across the spectrum. So much broader than ours, they can actually sense and respond to UV light as well as, you know, through the spectrum, the blue, green, yellow, red, uh, and then off into the far red, the parts of the spectrum that are beyond the red side. And each one of these sensors is connected to discrete physiology and discrete biochemistry, discrete molecular events. So back around 2000, um, when we were able to start buying uh, LEDs on eBay and this kind of thing, I started to make light sources that would allow me to test the hypothesis that we could not just grow plants under light, but control the way they grow. Essentially talk to plants with a vocabulary of light. And it turns out that you can do some pretty cool stuff with light and, and really hopefully be able to revolutionize the way we grow plants indoors. 
You use the the phrase, I think, environmentally modified organisms, which <laughs> I discovered today and is one of my new favorite phrases. <laughs> uh, so, so what kinds of things is it possible to do with light? Well, well, this is what can you change specifically? Like, what trait or what characteristic of a plant could you change? Well, well let me jump back to environmentally modified organisms because <laughs> yeah, yeah. what's so funny is that you see such an uproar when you add a gene to an organism, but when we use narrow bandwidth lighting you know, just using different parts of the spectrum, you see thousands and thousands of changes at the molecular level that never happen in nature. You essentially create a fingerprint of gene expression that's never been done under natural sun. And yet this is looked at as a, as a really positive thing, which is, is one of the great paradoxes. But going back to what things you can change, we've changed everything from plant stature, which is easy, you know, how tall it gets and how big the leaves are, to the color of the leaves, the um, amount of different nutrient compounds like glucosinolates. We can even change the uh, flavors and colors of, of different crops, some more than others. And that's really kind of the beauty of oh, the other big one is post-harvest quality. We can affect the way they behave after you pick them. And that's really important because- Wait, this, is, what, what? this is a whole other world. Hey. <laughs> what? Well, think about it this way, is that those cells in a fruit or vegetable that you've harvested, they're still alive and well and still paying attention to the environment around them. And all we're doing is giving them information that says, let's take on this different kind of uh, set of genes expressed or metabolism or whatever before we go into cold storage or before we go into shipping. And the idea was, could you give a treatment at, at, at harvest? or during shipping, or even at retail, could you put different fruits and vegetables under different color of lights that would make them last longer and taste better? And again, getting to the mission of making food more available for those in need. Do you think this means that one day we'll have little LED sections in our fridge <laughs> or in our cupboards at home? I'd like to think so. I, I, I kind of yeah, yeah. think there will be some some crops that are very amenable to this, especially the herbs. And I think you can get a lot more mileage out of an herb by growing it under different light conditions. And maybe every kitchen will have a, a, a cabinet that will be just full of aromas and flavors that you'll be able to t tune uh, each plant to produce different amounts of the important chemicals. And I, I think that that's very much reality. You could have like a rave, a rave section of your kitchen. That's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, there's, all the lights. That's right. You know, it's it's a shame we didn't put more plants and things like discotheques in this in the seventies. You, you could have had, you know, yeah, it would smell better. You know, or even in the raves, it wouldn't just smell like clove cigarettes, right? But 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 actually, the same chemical is one that is highly regulated by light in basil. So eugenol, it's it's produced at very high levels when you put it into different light environments. So we've been showing this for a while now, and, and it's really exciting to think that we can change the, the, I wanted to say fingerprint, but really the brain print of a, a herb by putting it in different light environments.
So, Kevin, uh, every every <laughs> episode we play a game with our guests called the Rapid Fire Question Round. And uh, we normally have a theme awesome. tune, but uh, today we're going to attempt to play that live with the lag and bandwidth issues of the internet in full force. <laughs> so let's... <laughs> Can I just say, as well, we recorded this last time and it sounded horrible. So, <laughs> so just look give, forward to that. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Three, two, one, and... It's time for the Rapid Fire Questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. <laughs> I told you. I warned you. Okay, here we go. Rapid fire questions. Just your first answer. Uh, Northern Illinois Huskies or Florida Gators? Uh, Florida Gators. It's a great place. Classic. Twizzlers or Hershey Bar? Uh, Hershey Bar. No, no, no question. Now, no cheating on this next one. What color is your toothbrush? Pink. <laughs> <laughs> With blue bristles. <laughs> day in your lab developing new molecular DNA extraction essays or day with kindergarten kids doing strawberry DNA extraction with them oh day with kindergartners are you kidding me that's an easy one <laughs> the kids are the best I, I, I love talking to kids because they're not broken yet like they, they still love testing a hypothesis they're still on they're not you know they, they kind of get bored of that by about fifth grade they've been taught to remember and regurgitate but the kids are just insane with their answers they give and i love it i'm sure yeah there's no cynicism with kids is there no, nothing cynical about them oh no 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 yeah that's what i love is that i go in the kindergarten through say fourth or fifth grade and say here's a problem we got we got to solve it what do we do and you hear the spectrum of answers and they all just want to dive in and normally they're sitting there listening to a teacher lecture to them about here are the facts here are the facts here's what we know and i say what don't we know let's just go crazy and come up with ideas and we we need to be pushing clever creativity much more than regurgitation so kindergartners no question absolutely what's sorry for, what's and if you're from sorry. my lab and you're listening sorry <laughs> <laughs> whilst we're on a quick tangent i just want to say i um, i work with insects and so i did a bug hunt with some young kids not long ago who were like maybe six or seven and um one of the girls after going around and seeing all these cool insects she said well i've decided that i'm only going to be a fashion designer four days of the week and on fridays i'm going to work with insects nice so i thought that was <laughs> i thought that was a little victory <laughs> that is a victory at 20 percent. that's a right sorry back to the questions these are these are important questions cats or dogs Dogs. Oh my God. Could we, sorry, Tangent, your dog, I saw chasing its tail or something in the garden on Twitter. It gave me life. What's your dog's name? Uh, that's, that's Mr. Tough. So I, I yeah, Mr. I have Tough and Bell, And I have a goose named Potsy and a goose named Merkin. A geese? Oh my God. Yeah, we have, yeah, we have uh, Potsy, Merkin, Dixie, and Goober. Uh, we have, we have, I, I live on a farm with ducks and chickens and geese. So we we have, uh, and then we've got a bunch of eggs in the incubator. That's adorable. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Wow. Uh, but Alex, a goose named Merkin is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, Hip-hop or thrash metal? Thrash metal, absolutely. Yeah. Were you in a, yeah, were you in a thrash metal band, I recall, Kevin? Or am I making that uh, up? I, I wouldn't say it was thrash metal. Was the, the, I was in a band that was a combination of punk rock and heavy metal. Sweet. At, at At the point when you had two camps you had punk rock and heavy metal so we were right in the yeah, middle yeah. and nobody liked us because we were we the punk guy said we were too metal metal guy said we were too punk rock so, so motorhead made it work we couldn't do it <laughs> too good for him too good for him uh holiday by the beach relaxing with a pina colada and a book 
or hiking trails in a national park, camping under the stars. Yeah, hiking in the trails, no question. Sounds lovely. Uh, would you rather eat plants grown in a red or blue light rich environment? Oh, a uh, blue. Wow. <laughs> That's controversial. You oh, you mean like, <laughs> am I in the blue environment or are the plants grown in the blue environment? Would that make a difference? Would you like to be in the blue environment? Well, you said that, you know, would you like to eat plants in a blue or red environment? I didn't know if it was the plant or me. Interpret, but, interpret but, as you will. But I would rather be in the blue environment because it's, uh, I don't know why. It'd be probably better for your Calming. circadian rhythms or something. Calming. Yeah. <laughs> Wheat hexaploid genome versus strawberry octoploid genome. Ooh, I'm going strawberry octoploid genome because even though it's got an extra set of chromosomes, it's a lot smaller and you can actually get some work done a little bit easier, maybe. Yeah. And you've got to stay on brand. <laughs> and yeah, well, but but I like going off brand. I'm, I'm strawberry. <laughs> I did that already. You know, I'm looking for my next frontier. Last question then. What was the last film that made you cry? Ooh. I have to really think about that because there, there's a lot of them that do. Um, I just can't think of the last film I saw. That's the problem. <laughs> um, You're working um, too hard. But, they, but they, there's so many good ones. I mean, I, 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 I can't think of it right now. I'm sorry. I'm totally blanking. want to take this and and go i'm a scientist so i really want to go into some detail about this now how does changing the light that like a lettuce or some spinach or some basil grows under how does that affect how that plant grows does it do something weird to the photosynthesis or something like that i think it's exactly i think it's has less to do with photosynthesis and more to do with photomorphogenesis right so the idea of light mediated developmental changes and we know that if you put a plant in a high uv for instance or blue light you'll change it to produce more photoprotective pigments so the things that come through you know type to get so a bit like natural sun cream almost if you had a lettuce out in a field that was getting hit by uv every day it would respond to try and protect itself because the lettuce can't run away into the shade like I can as a ginger person. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> except, except for the uh, except for the Argentinian wandering lettuce. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, the I have so much to learn about no, lettuce. No, no, I'm just making that up. Um, but, but, but lettuce. Don't excite is, me like that. <laughs> lettuce is uh, a good example because you can take some of these ones that are maybe green with a little bit of purple speckling and then put that into a UV rich environment or blue rich environment. And those very short wave bands will stimulate specific photosensors uh, called cryptochromes that then connect to the enzymes that mediate flux through the phenylpropanoid pathway, the ones that produce the purple pigments. And so you can really modulate how those behave by uh, tweaking the blue portion of the spectrum. And if you add far red, the stuff off the end of the spectrum, on some crops, you can really drive it synergistically and make very dark purple crops. So it's just a question of a, a specific receptor being connected to a certain suite of enzymes that modulate a given plant response. And what's nice about the phenylpropanoid pathway is that a number of different follicle compounds and aroma compounds are also produced as a byproduct of that metabolism. So, so that's where we change the flavors and aromas. Do you think that with the change in color of these vegetables and fruit, if you say you, say you can turn into sort of a dark, a very dark purple color, 
do you think the problem then becomes people might be a bit like, I don't want to eat a purple, you know, broccoli or whatever, you know? <laughs> well, I, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think that when we start to be able to uh, add diversity to a, to a, to a mixture of salad greens, for instance, you know, rather than just the iceberg lettuce, that's mostly just water and fiber, you know, can we add other compounds and other trace bioactive compounds, other things that may provide a role in human health? This is where it gets exciting for me. And we have a picture somewhere in some of my articles or on website or whatever, where we have a salad that is, and this is the neat part, all the same genetics in every leaf yet six different colors. And the idea is that Ken is a grower. What if you have an, you don't want to plant six kinds of lettuce. You want to have one fertilization and one pest management strategy. You could plant six different, you can plant the same kind of lettuce in six different light conditions and develop six different products. And if the store wants more purple, you flip the switch and make two bays of purple rather wow. than one. And now, so, so this is the beauty of this, is it allows you a lot more flexibility as a grower and uh, provides the consumer with more attractive produce. And the idea to get more of it into that consumer, I think it works. I'm kind of interested then in kind of what, if there's any, do we understand at all what the the kind of genetic potential is in terms of, let's say, we know that if you did some gene editing, you could make a, a strawberry may be radically different to the way it is now tastes radically different how far can you go with um light like how different can something be made using just light gosh i love that question because you're automatically constrained by the genetics that are there and yeah. how like how far can you pull them by using an environmental signal and yeah. and that and that's been intriguing to me. And so what we've started to do is go back through every lettuce variety we could get our hands on and say how far can we make it go? And <laughs> is can we take a lettuce that's hypersensitive to blue and cross it with one hypersensitive to red that now makes something that is super hypersensitive. And that means that we would have a larger range of control of individual traits, but maybe a lettuce that gets out of the gate faster. And right now, the indoor gardening thing, the indoor um, uh, indoor growing situation is really constrained by time. You can't spend the energy. you got to get these things grown and out the door. So we're trying to make mm. uh, energy star efficient plants, basically, so that they're more efficient with every photon invested. That's great. And I guess it's really important. You know, I, I hear more and more about the idea of farming in the city, vertical farms, lots of large scale indoor farms kind of being talked about. Um, so it'd be interesting to, you know, I guess very, very different crops might come out of those places than what we expect. I think that's true. I think you're going to see new varieties that are made especially for those environments. And we're actively mm. breeding leafy greens. We're looking at different herbs. Our idea is, is to instead of because the naive move was everybody in these indoor farms took things that grew well out in the field stuck it under a funny colored light and said oh wait it doesn't grow so well and that's because mm. it's meant to grow under full spectrum and so our question is can we find something that is tailored for that environment just like you would breed for sal salty soil or breed for short days or breed for any other environmental input we want to breed for an entirely artificial environment. And that's where we're going. That is so totally cool. It's a lot of fun because I think it, it 
it allows us to think about the, as I mentioned right when we started, not just growing a plant, but telling it how to grow. And that we're using this mm-hmm. language of, of light wavelengths to provide information and commands. And how cool is it mm-hmm. to think that we might be actually, it's kind of like an optically driven computer circuit. How do we use these different input channels? And can we engineer new ones? And that's where it's going to start getting exciting as we dovetail with synthetic biology. There's just so many things about that that uh, I just, it is so cool. I don't even know where to go. <laughs> it's not growing plants anymore. It's growing rainbows. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's throwing rainbows at plants, but throwing rainbows where we've removed specific parts of the rainbow, and uh, or added different parts of the rainbow, and it's 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 just kind of an interesting way to think about the mm-hmm. whole process. I look forward to a future where kids might say, "No, I want the last pink bit of lettuce. I'll have I'll have the blue one then." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, think about that. I mean, it's look at look at products that are aimed at children. They're all crazy colors. Novelty is a big deal. That's so, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. you could make them more fun. I saw I remember seeing an experiment some years ago now where they were giving kids carrots, but and they actually felt that they tasted better if they were out of a McDonald's bag just because of the way that it's packaged and the way that it's framed, even though it's the same carrot as the one the other kids were getting. Actually, this this kind of moves us on to something that, that I'm kind of quite interested to talk about, which is kind of around the perception of things and the perception of science. Um, so that in the same kind of way that these kids were perceiving that carrots tasted better when they're under kind of uh, fancy branding, I suppose, how mm. do we deal with science when it's branded or how do we deal with science when perhaps it's not branded? So at the moment, obviously, uh, with the global pandemic, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I wondered, Kevin, if you had any thoughts on how, as scientists, we can combat people's perceptions of science that's going on or um, maybe how we can challenge things that that we think aren't necessarily true. Oh, I Mm. absolutely love this question. And the reason is, is because this is a moment that we are like a rare window for scientists to now step into these conversations. Because right now there are people profiting off of bad information, um, selling bogus products. Um, Some of them are high politicians that are selling these ideas for political reasons. Mm -hmm. It's time for us as scientists to kind of band together um, individually and step into the conversations and say, you know, where are all the homeopaths right now in solving this problem? Where are the, um, you know, where are all of the uh, mineral crystal healers and the Reiki healers? And, you know, the bottom line is, is that this kind of thing exposes the charlatans that have been uh, pushing bad ideas for years. And so it's our turn to point that out. The people in the center of the curve, the average person doesn't know. They believe that uh, homeopathy is real. They may believe that acupuncture can have some proven effects. But what we can do as scientists is say, if it did, where is it right now? Mm. And also, so is that your top tip? Kind of, if it worked, where is it now? Well, it is, but it, it you have to do this around the idea of values-based messaging. So starting out by saying, it is critical that we rescue the healthcare system and uh, protect it and protect people. Um, from a system that can't handle the number of cases that are here. Mm. And 
point out the idea that if all of these other alternative modalities were real and you could cure anything with herbs or homeopathy, why isn't it being mm. done? And it's because it can't be done. And there still are a lot of claims online that it can be done. I think I read yesterday, you know, that there that uh, there's some level of well, actually, one of them was that uh, ivernectin, which is being used to control uh, ticks and fleas on animals, um, stores in the U.S. have had to remove ivernectin products from the shelf, like some of our farm stores, because people are buying it and treating themselves with this stuff. Um, fish tank medicine, all these things that people are buying uh, and, and causing harm and hurting themselves. So the message is, it's really important that we solve this crisis to save lives and to protect a healthcare system that can't support them. But if this is, so, so where are the alternative modalities now? And really challenge the fact that these things exist. That's the only, it's a great moment for us to be able to show and point out that these things are really not Kevin, true. can I just say, uh, there's a member of our chat who I'm looking at on the camera right now, because he recently, in a previous episode, told us just how important, how passionate he feels about all of these things, <laughs> destroying pseudosciences and fake news and all these things. He got quite heated about it, so I'm sure he's very happy to hear you say I'm very all happy this. to hear this, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Alex. <laughs> yeah. I saw you a smug little grin. I was giggling, yeah, yeah. Well, it is important, you know. I think misinformation is a big thing and pseudoscience Absolutely. in all these fields. Even in agricultural science, you know, before the health sciences. And I'm sure, Kevin, you've got probably a lot to say about misinformation in agricultural science as much as you have in, in the health sciences. <laughs> well, I've, I've paid a very substantial personal and professional I, I, I price recall. for stepping in for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's something that, in essence, has removed me from the public conversation in a lot of ways. Uh, for years, I did the I, I I spoke at conferences, and you know what's so funny is is I never went into a conference and said, "Here are all the great things we can do with biotechnology." What I did was I said, "Here's how it works, and here are the strengths mm. and limitations, the things it does well, the things that could do better, and here are the relative risks and the relative benefits." But most of the time, I spent time discussing with scientists and farmers how people think and how you can get them to change their opinion. And it has nothing to do with facts and nothing to do with evidence. Changing people's minds is about how they trust you as a spokesperson. And it's this more is, about politics than it is any, any kind of actual information, dare I say. Well, well politics makes noise in the equation, mm. to be honest. And so what it is, is it boils down to trust, which is a combination of your competence and reliability, how people feel about you in terms of how much you care, and what are your motivations. Mm. And all those things together uh, kind of go into a blender and come out as trust. And so I've been learning about how you shape those individual elements. And as scientists, we fail miserably because we don't listen. We just talk. We never start with why we do things. We talk about what we do and how we do it. And so really what it calls for, creating the durable change, starts with taking our most credible people, our scientists, our physicians, our farmers, and helping them change the way they step into a public conversation. And I think that's something that we've made some good headway, but there's a long way to go. There is a long way to go. It could be kind of hard. One of the things I started working at Roth said about two years ago now, and I hadn't kind of worked with scientists before that. Um, 
and one of the things we've we've all often seen, I imagine, is is an argument from a scientist dismissed because one of their papers somewhere happens to mention that they got funding from a big ag company or something like that. <laughs> no, you're talking to the right guy. I mean, we, I, I, I had people who would go back through the people who worked in my lab. I have a technician that in 1989 published a paper with somebody as a co-author who eventually would go work for Monsanto. <laughs> so, so, so they made like this crazy, like six degrees of separation issue to try to do anything to disqualify me as a credible source. And they had got one handed to them in 2015 because I had um, the Monsanto company made a contribution to my university for science education outreach. And I was running that program. And so they were they were able to use the Freedom of Information Act to get all my emails. And I didn't care. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's all public information. But what they were able to do is to construct a narrative that I was secretly on the take and was a uh, inner on the inner circle of corporate <laughs> lobbyists. And this appeared in the New York Times on the front page of the Sunday New York Times that I was on the inner circle of corporate strategists <laughs> I'm like, you gotta be kidding me i mean i'm just a, i'm how just how do you then challenge that because you were kind of uh, saying that you have to I, th- I think i was understanding is that as a scientist if you want to combat some of this kind of misinformation that, that's out there you have to be quite open and honest and transparent and then when you are open and honest and transparent there are people out there who kind of construct these narratives that, that you don't agree with so so you kind of it seems to me you're kind of stuck between a rock and a, a hard place how do you combat that yeah and and that's the hard part and that's why scientists are are reluctant to step into these conversations because the personal smear if you google me um the first 10 pages i would say about 80 percent of it is negative and it's all about me taking money to lie about science and all that stuff and it's not mm. true And I think scientists, I've had scientists at conferences come and give me a big hug and say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Um, But here's how you have to look at it. The truth is what the truth is. And we will get to that by looking at evidence and time will be our friend. You have to look at this as a marathon and not a sprint and know that you're going to suffer along the way. But if the goal is to disseminate the right information and battle misinformation and get more food to the people that need it, we're going to have to endure the pain of this. And uh, I think, you know, maybe it'll be five years, maybe it'll be 10, maybe it'll be a few more weeks with all what's going on. But I think we will be in a world where good technology is accepted. And I think we can credit a lot of folks who've really been in the front lines of, of discussing it with the public um, to maybe help create that change. So I, I think we're going to get there, but it, it takes more scientists discussing this in the right way. Um, we do have, we have one more game that we normally play, Kevin, which is um, where we use the, the most 1,000 commonly used English words. And you have to try to describe your science by constructing a sentence from these words, uh, and we will attempt to do the same. See if we've been listening all along to, to okay. whether you do. There's a lot here. So, okay, yeah, good. So we'll each uh, take a couple of minutes and um, construct a sentence. Okay, so 
Kevin, we asked you to describe your science using only the most commonly used 1,000 English words. Uh, what did you come up with? Uh, I came up with improve food and teach love of technology. Ah, excellent. Ooh. Just excellent. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, Alex? I got breakthrough to fact. Enjoy colourful plants because there's no vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, I got... Uh, Improving plants using specific colours of light. Oh, you're always the nerd it on is. this, Gary. <laughs> you always take it so I seriously. Specific. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I got scientist who grows food under fun lights and helps everyone be healthy. Great. Aww, that's <laughs> it's, it's interesting, the answers, though. How you know, Mine was such a more 30,000 metre... Uh, vision of this, like you know, I, like, like I look at my research very differently than than all of you did. Yeah, <laughs> I, but, but I mean, really different. It's very specific, and I kind of see the mission as being, um, you know, from a very broader lens. It's very interesting yeah, how yeah. that how that came out. Okay, so shall we? We'll wrap it up, Kevin. You're off uh, doing some doing your live streams, are you? In five five minutes or so. Yeah, about six minutes. I have to talk about snakes, and I and I and I don't have a cameraman today, so it's going to be even more interesting. Oh no! <laughs> ah. Good luck. Yeah, with that. We, we'll look forward to tuning in. Um, excellent. Okay, that's it then for another episode of the Science of Feeding the World with me, Gary Fruin. I'm Hannah McGrath. I'm Alex Dye. And uh, we've been joined today by Dr. Kevin Falter. Um, thanks very much, Kevin. Yeah, that was, it yeah, was thank you. really nice. It was really nice to talk to you. So thank you so much and best wishes in what you do. And thanks for doing this. It's so important for scientists to be part of this conversation. That's really nice. Stop thanks, stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> Great. Thanks, everyone. Right, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You are listening to a podcast. But what is that podcast? It's the science of feeding the Thanks for listening to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We would like it very much if you would like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in touch, you can get us on Twitter at SFDW podcast. Or if you just search for the Science of Feeding the World on Instagram or Facebook, you'll get us there as well.